Welcome to episode 48 of History Does You. Today we'll be talking about the road to the Vietnam War, and we had an interview with Dr. Brian Vandemark, which, as always, great insight and brings a lot of perspective. He did a tremendous amount of work with Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense, and he's also done a ton of scholarship on the lead up to the Vietnam War. And I've been wanting to do an episode on the road or the lead up to the Vietnam War for a while. Way back in season one, I think episode 19 it was, we did one on the road to Iraq. And it offers, I think, a unique case study, again, on what happens when very well-intentioned, smart, good people make tragic decisions. I think we see that with Vietnam. We see that with the Iraq war. I think we continue to see that with the way the Afghanistan war has kind of continued to go on. And I think people very often jump to conclusions about the ways these conflicts go on. And and in this particular episode, we don't necessarily get into the event events um, that sort of led to the war. Rather, it's kind of examined these different perspectives about different presidents whether it was JFK or Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon or the different cabinet members, whether it was Henry Kissinger or Dean Rusk or Robert McNamara, and kind of try and understand, again, a war that had serious, serious consequences and had serious rifts in American society that in a lot of ways continue to go on to this day. I think, again, it's a war the United States has really struggled to reconcile with for a a wide variety of reasons. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I think, again, this is kind of a unique case study of what happens when foreign policy has tragic decisions and how involvement in different countries and the overarching themes of the Cold War can cause serious tragic consequences. So I hope you enjoy the episode and learn about the road to Vietnam. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Brian Vandemark. He is a professor of history at the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis, where he has been a member of its history department since 1990. He's the author of several books on American history. He co-authored Robert McNamara's number one best-selling Vietnam memoir, In Retrospect, which became the basis of Errol Morris's Academy Award-winning documentary film, The Fog of War. He also wrote Pandora's Keepers, Nine Men and the Atomic Bomb, and Into the Quagmire, Lyndon Johnson, The Escalation of the Vietnam War. His most recent book is Road to Disaster. A New History of America's Descent into Vietnam, which was a Financial Times Best Book of the Year in 2018. So welcome on. Thanks for having me, Riley. And the start, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is your favorite? And how did you become interested in sort of just Vietnam in general? Okay. Well, there's several questions. I'll take them in order. The first question I'm going to break into, my favorite subject of history to research is modern American history. My PhD is in that field. Almost all the books I've written have related to that broader theme, and therefore I feel more competent to research and write into that area than others. Now, as far as history subjects to talk about, that's pretty wide-ranging. I spend a lot of my time teaching the second half of World History Survey course at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and that's compelled me over the years to familiarize myself with a lot of different civilizations and cultures. And I always like learning new things, a lifetime uh, joy of mine. And just, for example, recently, when I have some time to read recreationally, I went back and re-familiarized myself with the civilization of ancient Egypt and Howard Carter's famous find of King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 and the photographs that went with it. It's just fascinating to look at a civilization that old and see what we share in common with it. My favorite topic, pretty Catholic with a small c about that. I enjoy a lot of different genres of history. How did I become interested in Vietnam decision-making? Well, 
it's a long story. My PhD dissertation was on that topic when I was at UCLA in the uh, 1980s. When I moved to Washington, D.C. at the end of that decade, I helped Clark Clifford uh, research his memoir. And Clifford, as you probably know, was Secretary of Defense in the bloody year of 1968. So I spent a lot of time working on that aspect of the Vietnam War. And then I began a biography of Robert McNamara thereafter. And as you read in the uh, prologue to the book, Road to Disaster, I began interviewing him. He didn't want to talk about Vietnam because it was so painful. And then eventually, uh, I think he learned to trust me enough to open up about that. And I told him if he was willing to base his story on the record rather than wishful thinking, I would drop my biography project and help him with his own book because that would be infinitely more important and long-lasting than anything I could ever write about him. Uh, and we did that. It uh, reached number one immediately when it was published in 1995. And at that point, for a variety of reasons, I stopped writing about Vietnam. Partly, I felt like I had summited Mount Everest. There's nothing I could say that would surpass in importance what I'd helped him say. And the other factor was I just needed a time to reflect on how the tragedy could happen because I'd gotten to know him and Clifford and others, and they were fundamentally very decent people. And the paradox of that, well-intentioned, patriotic, intelligent, decent Americans, how could they mess up so badly? And I spent years and years reflecting on that. And I also wanted to wait for the archival record to become more thoroughly available. I'll give you two examples. When I was helping him on his memoir in the early 90s, he requested and was given special access to President Kennedy's recordings of meetings and phone conversations regarding Vietnam in the fall of 1963. They had never been released before to scholars or others, but we didn't know what the parameters were. And we were told, you can have access to them, but you have to specify the meeting dates that you want to listen to. And it's sort of like groping for an elephant in a dark room. You don't really know what you're looking for. And I identified some dates that were helpful, but there were many, many other pieces of that puzzle that remained closed for a very long time. And when I returned to the subject in my most recent book and started researching it about five to seven years ago, by then all of President Kennedy's meeting recordings and telephone recordings related to Vietnam had been made available online by the Kennedy Library. And it just opened up a whole new world for me because I could hear all of them and piece together the whole puzzle in a way that I could not have done that 25 or more years ago. And the same is essentially true of President Johnson's recordings of phone calls and meetings. Similar process, he was granted special access. We had to specify particular dates. It was an educated guess. Most of those dates were relevant, but there was a lot that we couldn't listen to. And then 25 years later, the, all of them are now available also online. And it's an extraordinarily rich collection of telephone recordings that really help you understand how all that happened. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your field? Is it kind of that process of going through all those phone recordings? Is it going through documents? What are some of those challenges? Well, there are many. Probably the most fundamental one is implicit in what I just mentioned, which is access to rich source material. Oftentimes, the most important primary source materials, if you're doing histories of presidential decision-making, are the most closely guarded by those presidential libraries for a very long time. And without access to those, you're really sort of telling the story of Hamlet without Hamlet, the major character. And you have to wait it out sometimes. You just have to be patient enough to understand that whatever you write in the interim is provisional. And that when those important primary sources become available, that's when history can be written that will endure because the universe of primary sources are, if not completely closed, almost totally closed in that way. Other challenges when you're doing presidential history, it's a matter of not too little, but too much. I remember working years ago in the, both the Kennedy and the Johnson libraries, and there are just literally millions 
of documents there that in one way or another could be relevant on a sliding scale of marginally relevant to crucially relevant. And you just have to learn to uh, perform triage on those documents and figure out which ones are really important and which ones are not important. And that can oftentimes take a long time and you're just plowing through a mountain of documents that can be uh, really daunting. Mm-hmm. And something that I think is interesting is that there's an immense amount of scholarship that's been done on the lead up to the Vietnam War. I know you mentioned how you became sort of reinterested in the subject with the release of those recordings, but really in general, what were you hoping to kind of contribute with your new book, Road to Disaster? I think fundamentally, I wanted to address and answer the question, how and why did good people do bad things? I think as a rule, the cliche is often reduced to the simplicity of bad people making bad decisions. It's much more frightening than that. It's much more terrifying than that. It's the story of good, well-intentioned, smart people making bad decisions. And as I point out in the prologue to my book, what's so unnerving about that is we all like to consider ourselves to be well-intentioned, intelligent, patriotic people. And that tells you that you and I are just as susceptible to making blunders decisions as they were. It's just that the stakes for us are infinitesimally small compared to the consequences of mistakes at that level. Mm-hmm. And just to get specifically more into kind of the lead up to Vietnam, to start, how deeply involved was the U.S. in both Vietnam and Southeast Asia from the end of World War II to the election of JFK in 1960? It was an incrementally increasing commitment over time. As many historians have pointed out, I'm not alone in this regard, beginning with President Truman and up through Kennedy's election in November 1960. With each passing year, our involvement became incrementally greater. For a variety of reasons, I'm not going to bore you or the listener with the intimate details that are available in many, many books. But the takeaway point is the consequence of that is the momentum for even deeper involvement is growing. It's sort of like a train that's starting to move down a downhill slope. It's a powerful, fast, heavy thing. And as it continues going downhill, it builds up speed and it's harder to stop. Mm -hmm. And I think two of the early foreign policy crises that the Kennedy administration faced was the Cuban Missile Crisis and then the Bay of Pigs invasion. How did that kind of shape the Kennedy administration's and his cabinet kind of foreign policy views in sort of broader context of the Cold War? Well, as you know, I opened my book on Vietnam decision making with a chapter first on the Bay of Pigs and then the Cuban Missile Crisis. And oftentimes people are taken aback by that, which is why are you beginning your narrative on the subject of Cuba? And as I try to point out and demonstrate in those chapters, the really critical part of that is the relationship that developed, that emerged between President Kennedy and the senior military leadership was highly complicated, very poor, and frankly reflected, in my opinion, very bad judgment on the part of the senior military leadership. And that led Kennedy and McNamara to question their judgment. And that's the backstory to the decision making on Vietnam. Oftentimes, historians have talked about how America's commitment in Indochina before 1960 contributed to Kennedy's situation, which is true. But what's often ignored is the relationship that developed as a result of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis between Kennedy and the service chiefs. It was highly problematic. And in that environment, it's not a recipe for ideal decision-making. If a president doesn't trust the judgment of the military, the military isn't telling them everything that they might or need to know. Mm-hmm. And did Lyndon Johnson hold the same views really on foreign policy as JFK? And just to follow up, was most of the cabinet and policymakers kept in place after Kennedy's assassination? Well, the second question is easy to answer is yes. Almost without exception, all of the senior foreign policy advisors that President Kennedy had, Johnson kept 
course, why? Because he was much less experienced in foreign policy than JFK had been, much less certain of himself, and therefore much more reliant on the expertise and experience of people like Secretary of State Rusk, Secretary of Defense McNamara, National Security Advisor Bundy, and so forth. The other piece of the question, yes, I think that LBJ and JFK had very similar worldviews when it came to foreign policy. I think the difference, though, is that Kennedy trusted his own judgment more than Johnson did his because Kennedy was familiar with the world and moved through it quite easily. Lyndon Johnson was unfamiliar with foreign policy, felt insecure in that arena, and therefore didn't trust his intuition, which I think, frankly, tended to be very commonsensical. I think the other factor, and I pointed this out in the book, and it's an important one, it's a subtle one, but an important one, which is John Kennedy had experienced war up close and personal as it really is, and Lyndon Johnson had not. And I think what that taught John Kennedy was that the only thing you control in a war is the first shot, and the plan never goes according to plan. So it made him very leery about oh, unleashing the dogs of war because he understood where they're going to end up going is unknown and uncontrollable. And I think, therefore, he fundamentally saw greater risk in doing that than perhaps walking away from the commitment if it came to a choice of using American troops or not. Whereas for Lyndon Johnson, he didn't have that intuitive understanding of the nonlinear nature of war as it really is. And he probably put greater emphasis on the consequences of walking away than he did on the consequences, negatively speaking, of going in with military troops. Mm -hmm. And one of the most famous incidents in the lead up to Vietnam was the Gulf of Tonkin. How did that really impact the wider thinking regarding Vietnam? Was this an event that the Johnson administration needed to get more involved in the country? It's always been a controversial subject. And I think over time, this myth developed. There was a secret plan on Johnson's part to push this resolution through in order to provide cover for him to start a war after he got elected in 1964. I think that's baloney. I think Johnson wanted a war like he wanted a hole in his head. But he was a Democratic politician who was very sensitive to criticism from the right wing of the Republican Party that had nominated Barry Goldwater as president. The last thing he wants to do is being accused of being soft on communism. And I think his attitude was, don't lose. Don't walk away from Vietnam, however dysfunctional it is, because if I do, I'm going to be skinned alive by Goldwater and that crowd on the Republican right. And remember, too, Johnson had an agenda. He wanted to push through really far-reaching reform legislation when it came to civil and political rights for African-Americans in the South. And he knew that conservatives in the South and elsewhere were gunning for him as a result of that. So I think that all factored into his sensitivity about appearing soft on communism. And as we've learned over the years, that uh, first attack against uh, the American destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin did happen. The second one didn't. But the important thing was at the time, Johnson thought it had. And remember, after the first attack, he did not retaliate. What he thought was a second one, he thought he had no choice but to do so in order to avoid being accused of being soft on communism. And he also used that as an opportunity to get that resolution through because for him, that was getting other people's fingerprints on a Vietnam policy if things went south. In other words, if this thing goes south, I want Congress's fingerprints on the decision to go in there too, uh, which is a very political calculation. But Lyndon Johnson was a very political animal. Mm -hmm. And did this overarching theme of domino theory heavily really influence kind of U.S. policymakers, particularly people like Dean Rusk and Robert McNamara. Do you think this led to sort of an impractical short-term strategy in Vietnam rather than maybe a more thoughtful long-term one? The answer, shortly speaking, is yes and yes. The domino theory had become almost unquestioned dogma by the early to mid-1960s. And I think 
the problem with something like that is when it becomes dogma, you stop questioning your assumptions that underlie the perception. You just act on it. And I think that Therefore, they kept thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, if we walk away from South Vietnam, the dominoes are going to fall and then we're going to be in a much bigger problem than we are even with this alone. But what that meant was they stopped critically reflecting on how valid the premise of falling dominoes was. Now, the second part of that question, I think that it encouraged them to be reactive rather than proactive. They were reactive in a short-term sense rather than proactive in a long-term way. In other words, if they looked down the road at the consequences of some of these choices they were making from one moment to the next, they probably would have been more cognizant of the immense problems and damage that that could inflict on the United States and its prestige and judgment and so forth. But that's the thing about Washington as it really is. It's not the way it is in novels and movies where West Wing looks really glamorous and everyone knows everything and it's all wonderful. The reality is that they are constantly coping with one crisis after another, trying to keep the lid on things. And what that tends to produce is a very reactive dynamic, which is, oh my goodness, I've got to deal with this problem because it's on CNN right now. Or I've got to deal with that problem to keep it from getting big and going on Fox News. And what that does is it it inhibits long-term thinking. In other words, what are the long-term consequences of these short-term reactive decisions that we're making? And I can sit here and tell you that's unfortunate and unwise, which it is, but I can also tell you that if you're on the hot seat, it's very difficult not to behave in that way. And one of the first things in terms of military policy was to take out this extensive bombing campaign in North Vietnam. Where did this idea kind of come from that North Vietnam could be bombed in the submission? Was this something that had developed in the cabinet or did it come from previous military policies, say in Korea or World War II? Where did that kind of come from? It didn't come from the civilian leadership. It came from the military leadership. The civilian leadership was always skeptical about the effectiveness of bombing. The military leadership was utterly convinced that that would be decisive, which of course proved to be fantastically inaccurate. But the interesting question is, why were they so utterly confident of something that turned out not to be true? Well, in their own experience, strategic bombing had worked against Germany and Japan in World War II. And they think to themselves, okay, if it worked for us then, it will work for us now. Of course, the military situation in Vietnam was very different than it was against Japan and Germany. We're dealing with guerrilla warriors who would choose where, when, and how long to fight in order to control their casualties and also limit their logistical consumption. And if they have very mild logistical needs, an unlimited amount of bombing isn't going to stop it. I think I mentioned this in the book. Their logistical consumption was so low that U.S. bombing against infiltration trails into South Vietnam could be more than 99% effective. And that would still allow enough supplies and men to get through for them to sustain their grill operations. Another aspect that I think often gets brought up is this idea that there was a disconnect between those who were on the ground in Vietnam and then policymakers back in D.C. Based off your research, do you think that is an accurate assessment? Yes, and I think lower down you went, and the closer to that point where the rubber meets the road in terms of military service in Vietnam, the more realistic and pessimistic soldiers were. Those who actually were dealing with the situation on the ground rather than their superiors sitting back in air-conditioned headquarters in Saigon or the Pentagon, saw the problems. They understood the dysfunction of the South Vietnamese army. They understood how savvy our adversary was in terms of not fighting us on our terms, but their own. And as a result of that, I think they developed a pretty thorough awareness of what the problems were. 
but they're not going to get listened to in the West Wing of the White House. There are a lot of filters between a private serving in the field in South Vietnam and presidential decision makers. And their pessimism, their discouragement would get diluted on the way up through the military. Because remember, the military always has had what I call a can-do culture. It's a powerful component of military culture, which is get the mission accomplished. Don't complain, accomplish the mission. And you don't get promoted in the military if you don't have that attitude. So if you're an ambitious junior officer or a mid-level officer or even a senior officer in the military, you're not going to be infatuated with reports from below saying this thing is a problematic mess. They're going to say, well, these people are being pessimistic and we're going to report to our superiors at the Pentagon in Washington that we'll pull up our socks and get this done because we're can-do people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting the way that combat troops were deployed to Vietnam. Do you think once that happened, there was really no turning back from the war? Or do you think some of the early battles at, you know, Yad Drang, for example, or Phan Thuong kind of reinforced the administration's belief that military victory could be achieved in some sense? Well, I'm not sure that Johnson or Nixon or Kennedy, for that matter, ever thought a military victory in South Vietnam could be achieved. What they all wanted to avoid was a defeat. Now, I think there were people in the military who were highly confident that if you send in the 7th Cavalry, everything's going to be just fine. But the other dynamic at work, and I point this out in the book, is it's that foot-in-the-door dynamic. Once the military is authorized to send combat troops into South Vietnam, we're off to the races. That gives them leverage over President of the United States. Because all they need to do is walk into the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, you need to commit X more troops in order to protect our boys who are already there. If you're president of the United States, that puts excruciating pressure on you. The likelihood that you're going to say no in the real world is very limited. And I think it put the military in the driver's seat of that car once combat troops were committed. And when you're dealing with the president, particularly like Johnson, who is insecure, who found it very difficult to say no to the military, that compounds the problem. I think that is a difference between Johnson and Kennedy. I think Kennedy knew how to say no to them. But remember, he had also served in combat. He knew what war really was, and he wasn't therefore awed by the wisdom or intelligence of the brass, because he understood how wrong they could be in their judgment. They're not unpatriotic. They're very patriotic, but that just because you're patriotic doesn't make you wise. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of wrap up with some concluding questions, do you think that military intervention in Vietnam was inevitable? And really, how were a lot of the warning signs missed, really? I think hindsight oftentimes makes things that happen look inevitable. And to some degree, there's truth to that, as particularly because our commitment grew incrementally over time. As you wade deeper and deeper into that swamp, it's harder and harder to back your way out of it. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And I think, too, remember the politics of this. You and I lived in a different era than they did. They lived in an era in which anti-communism was powerful in this country. There was a consensus on the part of the American people in both parties that you have to be tough and strong in dealing with communists. So the likelihood that any president, particularly the Democratic Party, who have to always constantly worry about being attacked by on their right flank, that makes them sensitive to losing Vietnam. And they all finesse it as long as they can. They don't want to jump off the diving board in the deep end of that pool. But eventually what happened was the, what I'm trying to think of a metaphor here that conveys my point. Kennedy tried to stall making a choice about either getting in deep or getting out. And he was able to stall. The problem was by the time Johnson became president, he couldn't stall anymore. 
by late 64 or 65, he didn't have the option of doing what he had been doing up to then, which is stalling, because he understood that both were bad. Getting out would be bad and getting in would be bad. So he didn't want to make the choice, but he got stuck with the choice and he made a poor one. But again, you have to understand the dynamics at work and what was pressuring him too. In addition, do you think the decision-making process in the lead up to Vietnam showed the challenges of civil-military relations, particularly when it came to what the civilians wanted and what the military wanted? Yes. And I think that it's one reason why we failed so badly in Vietnam. As I point out in the book along the way and in the concluding chapter, one of the great problems was the president and the senior military leadership of the country wouldn't level with each other. They wouldn't really tell each other what their greatest fears and concerns were. They would hold back because they fundamentally, at some level, didn't trust each other. And that's a disaster. Wars are difficult enough as they are when you've got people that level cooperating and really laying their hair down and explaining in frank terms how they see things. I don't think that the presidents or the service chiefs did that during the Vietnam era, but because of the complicated relationship that had developed as a result of things like the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think that's especially true for Democratic presidents. Because they feared the political power of the service chiefs and their relationship with conservatives on the Hill. There's a very famous movie that was made by Hollywood in 1964 called Seven Days in May, which essentially is a military plot to overthrow a liberal president of the United States. Now, that's hyperbole and it's fantasy, but there was a feeling on the part of a lot of Democratic politicians in that part of American history that the military was really so intensely, conservatively anti-communist that they had nothing but disdain and disrespect for presidents who, of the Democratic Party. And that creates a very poor reciprocal communication dynamic between those two groups. And I think that's something that is important to fix. Repeating that would be very, very unhelpful in terms of making good decisions. And I think the other thing that is important to recognize is this perspective of military officers often varies dramatically from the perspective of presidents. To use a metaphor, the bandwidth of military officers is narrower. Westmoreland, when he commanded American forces in Vietnam, his bandwidth was the theater of operations in Southeast Asia. He was responsible for that. That was his wheelhouse. Well, presidents of the United States, their wheelhouse is the whole world, as well as the political unity of the American people. They have so many factors they have to weigh when it comes to making decisions about military troop commitments in Vietnam far beyond the tactical theater of operations. And I think that oftentimes creates the friction between those two groups. What's the solution to that problem? Part of it is inevitable. I think part of it is educating military officers to recognize the pressures that exist on civilian political leaders. I think they tend to be less cognizant of that than vice versa. But I feel in some ways like what I'm doing by teaching at the Naval Academy is contributing to fixing that problem. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been involved in sort of telling the stories of those who were kind of involved in those decision-making process. Do you think a lot of them were came the terms of the consequences of their choices? Were some of them remorseful or regretful of what happened? I think they were all remorseful and regretful. You would have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to be remorseful and regretful about the tragedy of that war. All you need to do is go down to the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. and look at the 58,000 names and think about the millions of Indo-Chinese who died in that war. So they were all remorseful and regretful. I think it took some of them longer to come to terms with that than others, partly because their responsibility might have been greater and their sensitivity to what had happened in terms of human costs might be greater. And when I'm referring to Robert McNamara here, 
he bore a tremendous amount of responsibility for what happened. But he was also extraordinarily sensitive and cognizant on an emotional, psychological level to the damage that decisions he participated in inflicted on a lot of human beings. And I think in the short run, his coping mechanism was to shut it down, just not go there. It was too painful for him and for the country to do that. I think it took him the better part of 30 years to finally come to terms with that. And it was very difficult for him. He had developed this superficial and inaccurate public image of being the human computer, you know, the bloodless technocrat who's just crunching numbers. Well, he was very good at crunching numbers, but there was another part of him which was extraordinarily sensitive and extraordinarily emotional. And I think that part of him just had immense difficulty owning what had happened. And it can be criticized for taking a long time to do that. When he published his memoir in 1995, a lot of people said, well, great, but it's pretty late, sir. Well, it was pretty late. When you are responsible for that kind of damage, it probably takes you a long time to own it because it's with you forever. It was with him for the rest of his life and he knew it would be with him in the pages of history until the end of time. It doesn't go away. And I always tell my students at Annapolis, I said, a lot of people think that getting to the top of the Pentagon or the White House or the State Department or whatever is what it's all about. You dream and scheme to get to the top. Well, the thing is, once you get up there, there's an expression, you know, the summit of Everest is a death zone. It's dangerous there. The air is thin. And if you make a mistake, you fall thousands of feet. And the point I'm trying to make to you is that the easy decisions are made at a low level. The harder decisions are made at a middle level. The hardest decisions are made at the top. And the hardest decisions are those in which you are basically choosing among lesser evils. Not which choice is good, but which choice is least bad. And those choices almost always, if you're talking about war and peace, will affect the lives of human beings. And I want people to recognize that, that that being Secretary of Defense is not romantic. Mm-hmm. And my final question is, overall, what do you think the legacy of the decision-making process that went in Vietnam? And what sorts of lessons do you think it offers to people coming up today, particularly about maybe U.S. foreign policy and maybe just leadership in general? Well, I think the lessons that it offers are endless and timeless. You learn so, so much more from your failures than you do from your successes. And I couldn't begin to give you an exhaustive list. I'll just mention a couple of things to you, which is we had batted a thousand until then. And that in itself, when you no longer bat a thousand, is traumatic. And coping with that is very, very difficult and challenging, not only for political leaders, but for the American people. I think at some level, the American people are still trying to come to terms with that. We're the A team, not the B team, the A team. The A team doesn't make mistakes, or if they make mistakes, they're marginal mistakes, and they always fix them, and they all eventually prevail. Well, in Vietnam, the A team made mistakes and kept at it and kept at it and kept at it and gave gave it so much, and we still failed. That's very, very difficult to process. To some degree, and it's not just this, but that expression of the ancient Greeks is true. Hubris, pride cometh before fall. There is a lot of that to this story. But if you're going to accuse and indict and convict people like Robert McNair and Lyndon Johnson and others of being prideful and hubristic, you better give that label to a whole lot of other people too. Because I think, frankly, the country was that. And we've hopefully learned from that, that we too can make mistakes. We're a great country. We mean well, but that is no insurance against making grievous mistakes in the world with powerful consequences for not only Americans, but many other people. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Vandemark. I think he brings kind of a unique perspective on the road to the Vietnam War, not just focusing on the events of it, but also, again, the perspective of people that were vilified for many, many years. And as he mentions, I think ultimately took a while to come to terms with their actions and the consequences of those decisions. And again, I think as time goes on, those perspectives will change. I think Robert McNamara died in 1993 or 94 or somewhere in the 90s. I forget, I'm sort of going off the top of my head. But again, the way Vietnam continues to be remembered as, again, the only way that I think can describe it as a tragedy, the way that many of the men that went to fight were of the lower class or people of color, the way that kind of the rifts between sort of the people involved in those decision-making And I think the loss of faith in institutions, particularly the U.S. government, I think the media and the government that I think worked together for a lot a long time, really those relationships became entangled. That again, I think the consequences of that continues to go on to this day. But looking at Vietnam today and the United States today, relations in some ways have normalized. President Obama or former President Obama, I think, traveled to the country. And I have lots of friends that studied abroad and went to Vietnam and they say great things about it. It's, again, I think exploring the Vietnamese perspective, because again, the war really many see it as almost a 30-year war, starting with the French, and then heading to the Americans. And then later there was a war between the Vietnam and China. So, and millions of people died in the war. And again, that country is also, I think, dealing with some of those demons, as well as the United States. So again, I think you can only describe Vietnam as a tragedy, and there's no other words to really summarize it. But again, examining how these things come about, how foreign policy can have tragic consequences, especially when it comes to war and the consequences for these countries. Because again, in many ways, we simply packed our bags and left. But millions of South Vietnamese that had fought and had helped the U.S. were left behind and were sent off the re-education camps or suffered even worse consequences. So again, I think Vietnam, I think, is a case study that will be continuing to be looked at at how to not do foreign policy just as much as I think in a a few decades people will look at Iraq the same way. What goes wrong when foreign policy disasters happen? So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Maybe it gave you a little bit more perspective. Again, I think as time goes on and Vietnam vets continue to leave us, hopefully there will be a revival in scholarship as some of these anniversaries come around, or maybe not. Because again, I think because it's a tragedy, people don't want to talk about it. So again, I think it's despite decades later, it's still something I think we're coming to terms with. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. <laughs>